0: Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuelli, and we are joined by Danny Scherzen, the who is a retired Army major, journalist, anti-war activist. He writes for many different outlets. And he's also the author of two books, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, and his latest book, Patriotic Descent, America in the Age of Endless War. Thanks for joining us, Danny.
1: Thanks for having me. Really glad to do it.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's go back a little bit. I know you've done this plenty of times because I spent the last twenty four hours going through a lot of your old uh, and recent uh, interviews, podcasts, and so forth. But this is probably a different audience, and so I'd like to at least give people a little bit of your background. Um, why don't you s- sort of start with where you grew up and how you ended up joining the uh, army?
1: Yeah, so unlike a lot of officers, especially the ones that I met at West Point, you know, I don't come from uh, family background in military service as I I say oftentimes. uh, I don't think I even realized how much of like a family business, especially the officer corps was, and then especially the kind of small West Point Corps that was. Um pretty working class background, Staten Island, so like non cosmopolitan New York, you know, I like to say it's like a dying breed, you know, the neighborhood I'm from. It's like the last of the urban white trash, you know. But I say that with love, of course. Uh and it's not completely true. Uh not really an intellectual family, a lot of firefighters, cops, um, you know, just like manual labor types and, and all that. So college wasn't even really very common at all. I think I was second in like the extended family to go, but, uh, you know, I I was just always really good at school, sort of bookish, very much a double life kid. You know, I could be one sort with like my friends in order to like fit in and kiss pretty girls and then sort of go to my room and, you know, read like nine books. And so, uh, you know, I have good grades and everything and for a lot of reasons, but really mainly too, I wanted to go into the military pretty young. You know, I was like, one is that I was fascinated with just, you know, war culture and, and movies. And this is the eighties, nineties, kind of like Top Gun, disney you know, sanitized war, Red Dawn. So that was part of it. And then I think the other two, the main two were, um, you know, I wanted to travel, do something special and kind of like get out of that world and just like see, the rest of the country because, uh, you know, especially when you're from like the city at all in the East coast, you know, like, my mom thinks that the wild West is like Pocono mountains, you know, in Eastern Pennsylvania. Like there's just, there's not much of like a sense that there's another like whole bunch of America. So forget about the world, which I wanted to see. I just wanted to like travel to the United States, but probably it was this like, and it's a buzzword now, but like, I mean it in a real sense, like this idea of just, you know, masculinity and toughness and, I mean, we do live in a society to some extent, which isn't completely unique, where in terms of like world history, this exists a lot, where it's like military service is the highest form of human activity, especially for like a young man. And so I think I just had the sense that like, if I want to be something really special, then what could be better than the military? So I didn't have an exact sense of like how that was going to go. Um, I mean, I even talked to recruiters just to enlist, you know, had them come over my apartment, talk to my mom, but, uh, because my grades and such were, were, were quite good. It was actually my father of all people who sort of pre-internet, you know, we didn't have a computer really. So pre-internet, like found out that, well, you know, if you go to like West Point, then that's a college and the military because largely my big beef with ROTC, you know, the the typical college program, like 80% of officers go through was I wanted the real deal. I said, you know, like, I want to, like, go straight in and be really in the military. Now, West Point's not exactly that, but uh, in terms of the lived experience, you're technically on active duty. And so, anyway, I got kind of convinced that that if I could get in, I ought to go. And it's just one of those things you don't feel like you say no to, I guess. And uh, so then when I did get in, I which was a surprise, because I thought you had to be, like, a congressman's kid or something like that. But, right. yeah, got in, and then uh, that was July of 01 So right before 9-11, really, I joined the military.
0: Okay, that was I was just going to cut in real quick to give us a timeline. So this is 01, this is July 01. So prior to September 11th, um at that time I'm going into my senior year in high school. I was a senior in high school when 911 hit. So you're at West Point when 911 happens. What are you thinking at that point? And one of the things I was going to ask you to back up is was anyone from your family have any kind of a political alignment or was there any mm-hmm. kind of opinion on like Hey, we don't want you to go, or we want you to go for opportunity. Or was there a sense of like, um, you know, maybe skepticism or, or concern on, on their behalf?
1: That's actually, you know, it's funny. No one really ever asked me that part. And I'm, I'm glad you did. Um, my family was very much immersed in like populist working class politics, you know, not like, uh, not sophisticated language for it. I would say that, um, in 2001, the family as a whole, to the extent that there's consensus, hadn't shifted like they have now, uh, mostly to the right. All right. So not everyone in my family, but like a pretty good chunk are probably vaguely in like the Trump camp now. But by that point, you know, my grandfather was still alive, sort of like the, the patriarch of my mother's side of the family, 30 uh, something, 37 year firefighter, big deal in our neighborhood. He was like an old school Roosevelt Democrat. Hardcore, you know, never vote for a Republican, that's the party of the rich. So there was still that influence, but it wasn't like lefty in the sense of like what you see today or what people would consider themselves. Both sides of that populist, you know, whether they were vaguely right or vaguely left, were hyper patriotic. So there was really no concern about me going to the military. In fact, it was like the proudest thing that had ever happened in the family. I mean, it was a big deal. It was bad for me because it like grew my head, the only person who raised any objection was was his wife, my grandmother, May, who was a, a quiet and sort of bookish woman who never drove an automobile and certainly never went to college, but who otherwise in a different time would have probably been like a literature professor at Bryn Mawr, you know, mm-hmm. a very, very smart woman used to read the dictionary, do the New York Times crossword puzzle. She was not too pleased. She was probably like almost a pacifist. And she had the sense that I was getting into something That maybe I didn't understand, which I was 17 and my mother signed me into the military. So she wasn't wrong. But outside of her quiet concern, no, it was very, yes, very pro-military because it didn't really matter if you were, you know, an FDR Democrat or a Reagan Republican in the family. You love the military. So and then the second part of the question was about 9-11. I think one of the things I talk about a lot in interviews that is super important is to understand how strange the last 20 years are. Over the last 19 years, it's become so normal to just be at war, even if it's especially if it's like a low intensity, like it has been since, say, like 2013, 14, when Afghanistan troop numbers came down. Uh, That was, you know, you remember, because we're the same age, that was not normal in the 90s. Normal in the 90s was like an occasional peacekeeping operation. A few soldiers died here and there. If Black Hawk Down happens, it's going to be a Hollywood blockbuster because 18 soldiers just don't die in one day anymore. Uh, so my expectation management was very different. So in July 2nd of one, when I show up, it's what's my expectation, Germany for my first duty station, partying, probably marry a German girl, go to Kosovo and take cool pictures and act like I was really in the army. And then I'm in boxing class right at the beginning of my plebe year, towers come down, we run in, we watch it in real time. And of course, uh, I think we actually did for one of those rare moments in, in, in your life where, you know. We actually did know something profound had just kind of happened, obviously. I guess the country did, but there was a sense of, like, urgency. And I guess you probably even felt it more going straight, you know, going, like, straight in. Um, But even as a plebe with three more years under our belt, it was, you know, pretty clear that this uh, expectation of what the military career would be was a lot different from the reality. And, of course, that's been the story for the last 19 years.
0: Right. No, I was in uh, funny, you were at boxing class. I was lifting weights with my friend Chris Simmons in our morning. Uh, we had like a conditioning course you could take as a senior. It was like a fuck off course, you know, just stuff you could take to get out. And so we, just, we were doing like weightlifting in the morning. Yeah, I remember it like yesterday. I was doing flat dumbbell bench press and in the corner of the room, the first tower hit, people thought it was an accident. We even had people running up to the TV or like, is this a movie? Like what the fuck's going on? Like we had people asking that question. And then when the second plane hit, of course, I think everybody knew the situation was serious, but I definitely wasn't in a mature mindset at that point. Our number one concern that day was whether or not we were getting out of school early. So it was like, are we get, does this mean classes are cut for the day? We were like, fuck, yeah, all right. I mean, that's, I think that too, like thinking back, that is how, I mean, a whole generation of us that ended up in these wars, like a lot of us, to your point, even those of us who joined after 9-11, I don't think we quite understood unless maybe we had a family member who served in Nam. If we had somebody who served in Vietnam, maybe they imparted some of that wisdom and knowledge on us of the brutality of war. But beyond that, I mean, if you had friends or relatives who served in the 80s or 90s, they talked to you about, you know, playing volleyball in uh, Hawaii or going to Okinawa or whatever the fuck. It It was like a, you know, a pass to take a vacation around the world. It was like a whole two decades of people who joined that didn't expect they were going to war.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and I remember even going to school at West Point. So the two thirds, three quarters of the instructors are rotating captains and majors who like go out in the forest. That's what I did, right? They go out in the forest, they do 10 years. They come out and they teach for a couple of years Uh, because you have to go to grad school first. It, was, it wasn't until 2004 and 2005 when I was a junior and a senior that we had, like, any combat veterans on our faculty teaching us military science, right? Uh, the exception was a couple of crusty old colonels who were, like, the heads of the departments who had been in Vietnam. They were really rare at that point. They had mostly retired. So it was strange because, like you said, even career officers who did 20, 25 years— could go through their entire time and, you know, obviously never have served in any real combat. Uh, They may have touched with like Granada or Panama or Desert Storm, but the reality is even if you just look at the statistics there, the odds that you were even like in a firefight are extremely low. And again, that's not to say that it makes you wonderful to be in a fight, but yeah, yeah, it was a whole different military. Totally strange.
0: It was something that struck me immediately. I mean, I went to boot camp in September of 2002, uh, ended up in MCRD San Diego, and... Everyone that was in our command, any of our drill instructors, and then all of our instructors after that, the School of Infantry, uh, not one of them had seen combat. And if they had, they sort of talked up their experiences in Grenada. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of us were skeptical (laughs) of what those experiences actually were, at least those of us who even knew what the fuck Grenada was. Um, Give give me a sense of, because I don't want to get too much into your time at West Point. Maybe we could do that another time. But I'm wondering now... You're there until, what do you do, a four or six-year term there?
1: It's four, so I graduated in May of '05.
0: Okay, and then in May of '05, where are you at at that point? Even politically now, the war's yeah. been going on for a while. Are you reading about the anti-war movement? Like, what kind of literature are you getting into? You're obviously a historian, so I'm sort of wondering what your politics were at the point that you're out of West Point.
1: So I was, like, probably a budding kind of neocon in, like, 2001, 2003, Uh, but actually, interestingly enough, I mean, I've said this a number of times, it's a totally flawed place, and there's a lot of monsters there, but West Point is a real university, despite itself almost. I mean, it really is for a number of reasons, and so I had some pretty challenging and interesting instructors. In fact, some of the best ones tended to be those Vietnam officers, and uh, I was reading things. I mean, I was assigned Andy Basevich's book, you know, uh, the a New American Militarism, right? who was a West Point grad, big time anti-war author now. I mean, I read that in 2004 and 4-5, my senior year, like right when it came out, the sign of the colloquium. So I was being presented with some alternative and like independent analyses that were critical. I would say that by the time I graduated, I mean, I don't know that I would have ever called myself like a, uh, I still don't, but like a Democrat or a liberal, but I certainly was skeptical of the wars. I think though that a lot of times at that point my critique was more we can't win or we're doing it wrong or you know we should have brought more troops or we should have been better at coin or even just critical of the fact that maybe we can't build nations. So I, I was skeptical but it wasn't like a systemic critique. Right. So oddly enough I did undergo a change from like a full-throated like patriot bush type in 0102 because Iraq went so poorly And there is the experience at breakfast there where they announce the name of, like, the former cadet, now lieutenant or captain who died the day before at breakfast. And, you know, one sense that could actually, like, fire you up more to be a patriot, but there is something kind of somber about it. So as Iraq went bad, I definitely got a little more critical, but it was was vague and it wasn't sophisticated yet, and it certainly wasn't systemic.
0: What what unit did you end up with out out of uh, West Point? And I'm sorry if the lingo is slightly different between uh-huh. the Marine. And I absolutely have no idea of the officer experience. So,
1: you know, it's pretty um, it's pretty similar actually. Uh, yeah, there's like small terms that are different, but uh, so I had to go to like basic officer training. So technically, I signed on to be an armor officer, but you know, in the Army, I don't know if it's really like that in the Marines because you don't know as big of an armor community. But it's like half actual tank guys. I was never on a tank or a track vehicle. And the other half goes like cab, we call it, which is just like glorified infantry who wears cowboy hats at their parties. I knew I wanted to do that mainly because that's what uh, my favorite instructors did. I mean, they were like cool dudes. And uh, so I had to go to like my training. So I went to, I had to train on tanks first. And then I went to the scout troop, platoon leaders course. Everyone goes through like six or eight months of training. But the unit I went to was in the second infantry division. It was a light cab squadron, three, six, one cab. And then uh, when I left them, I went to 4th Squadron, 4th Cav, which is an older unit, uh, technically a mechanized unit, but the, we had turned in all of our armored vehicles in order to go to Afghanistan. It was pretty much all foot traffic there. We didn't even have Humvees. So, uh, yeah, so I was in basically light cavalry squadrons, scout, scouts who were 19 deltas in the Army.
0: And what, what, first,
1: uh, first division, yeah.
0: yeah, what unit uh, Where at, Danny? What state? Yeah, so what I, sort of base were you at? So my my two
1: main bases, like where I commanded, like a platoon and then a troop, uh, were Fort Carson, Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, as a lieutenant, and then Fort Riley, Kansas, as a captain. And then in between there, I you know did like in training here and there and stuff. And I was at Fort Knox twice, which is kind of like the home training base of the armor and cab community, and then West
0: Point. So you end up in Iraq during the surge. Did For any of your training, did you end up in uh, 29 Palms doing any kind of training?
1: No, I was at Fort Irwin, you know, okay. uh, Barstow, but never actually went to 29 Palms, although I imagine the terrain is uh, somewhat similar, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I went to the, the – uh, damn if I didn't hate <laughs> – the Mojave Desert for training but yeah I went to the National Training Center a couple of times just for, for a month. of like, and I, I were there I for to, four I years. To, <laughs> I used to joke that uh that I would rather do 90 days in combat fully understanding that I might die than do 30 days at Fort Irwin. <laughs> People at our base. <laughs> hey
0: man we used to joke the same thing. We were at 29 Palms the whole time so it was from the Mojave to Kuwait to Iraq back to Kuwait Iraq. Mojave you know for some of us three different times others you know twice but uh yeah. I've had enough of the desert. I, if I can never see a desert again, um, I it would be fine with me. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, the, the mountain landscape is beautiful if you're air conditioned and you can go out at night,
0: but that's right. That's right. Um, so you end up, you, is, were you, uh, deploying out of uh, Kansas or Colorado for that first deployment? First one was out of Colorado. Yeah. Okay. And what, what month and year was that?
1: We left in the beginning of October 06. So what was interesting about that is I had sort of a similar experience to the West Point thing in the sense that uh, we went to Iraq before the surge, before the surge was even announced and before Petraeus was appointed, because those two didn't happen at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, so I was there for like three months before Bush announced the surge. And so what was interesting about that, again, was that um, the rhetoric, the strategy, the mission statement, they all changed at that like third month. And then also just a little after that, I don't remember if it was maybe February or March, then that's when we got extended the additional three months. So the year became 15 months. So yeah, I saw kind of both sides of that. And of course, October and November, and I think December as well were the bloodiest months for total casualties, including like Iraqi civil war casualties, just bad luck that I happened to show up at that time. But it was a, it was a legit like, full fledged civil war then, which, you know, you, I'm sure, you know, but that those months in particular, I've gone back and studied and written about this. They were like very ugly statistically. And then the surge was announced and everything was better. Right. That's what we were told. Right. <laughs> we, won, we won, you know?
0: Yeah. I was, uh, we left the second time we left. What was it? Uh, May of Oh five. Uh, that was in al-Kaim, uh, in Western Iraq, just North of the Syrian, well, just on the Syrian border and just on the Euphrates, um, so we left just right around the Battle of al right after the Battle of Volusia. Um That was our second deployment. First deployment during the initial invasion ended up in uh, Najaf was where 1st Battalion, 7th Marines uh, ended up for that, the first deployment. Yeah, second deployment in al So we left at that time by January 06, I was already out of the Marine Corps and they had tried to send me on a third deployment. And I refused a third deployment and found a nice sort of administrative way to get out, which was they sent me to a drug and alcohol rehabilitation sort of inpatient program. And there Mm -hmm. was something that like, there was a bureaucratic mechanism in place where my therapist told me, if you fail this program, they have to discharge you with a general under honorable. So I kept telling them, I'm not going to go to the armory. I'm not going to pick up a weapon. I'm not going to deploy. They kept bouncing me around, go talk to the base Sergeant Major, I got to talk to people way above my pay grade that I never interacted with before, and they were getting nervous because at that point, Danny, a lot of guys in our unit had had enough. I mean, people don't recognize, I mean, we don't talk about it as much today, but and there wasn't a sense of like a strong political ideological orientation. But after the first deployment, people were told, we were told, that's it. We won the war, it's over, you guys are going to Okinawa next time, it's party time, it's over with. And then within two or three months after getting back from the first deployment, they were like, look, you're going on another deployment, and after that, probably another one. And at that point, morale just went into the fucking tank, um, which I would argue is one of the reasons why uh, there were so many atro- – one of the reasons why so many atrocities were committed during our second deployment, much of what we testified about. But guys had had enough. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that, that, that whole period of time and then getting out you know, joining the anti-war movement and then listening to the rhetoric, um, this sort of mainstream discourse on the war. Of course, the Democrats took the House and the Senate in 2006. I think some of us were hoping that they were going to cut off funding to the war and then immediately came out and said, we're not going to cut off funding to the war, which was their only leverage that they had to stop the war. Um, And, you know, I think that made a lot of us critical of Obama going into 2008. There's like that whole period. So it's always interesting for me, to talk to other veterans who are living through that period, but in a completely different context. Um, And so us being the same agent, I mean, you were there during the surge. What do you think you're, you get there in October, 2006. What what was the previous unit that you were replacing telling you? Because I know by the time we arrived in Al Alkaim for the second unit or for the second tour, the unit we were replacing was out of uh, uh, Camp Lejeune. uh, And many of their people told us that they just parked under bridges uh, would set up an observation post, tell the command that they were going out patrolling, but not really patrol. Um, they're like, look, this place is fucked up. People don't like us here. They don't want us here. And the best way to keep everybody safe is to just not drive around too much. Um, and then, of course, our unit came in and said, these guys were shit bags. So we've got to do double the amount of patrolling and all the rest because these guys didn't do their job the right way. But that was the, like the... You know those conversations you're having with those guys that are like, "Hey, we're on our way out. You guys are on your way in. Good luck," type of thing. Like, what was the what was yeah. the conversations you had with folks at that time?
1: It's funny. I think most people don't realize that how every unit, when they do their handoff, they like talk shit about each other. Yeah, and it's always the same. It's always the same script, right? The the new unit is like these guys are complacent. They went native. Like they don't. They didn't want even. You know, they're so undisciplined. We're gonna really change the world. Or at least our sector, and then the new guys, the old guys are looking at you like, "Oh, these idiots! Like, don't know what they're getting into." And it's like that—that that tension exists. I've, you know, I've seen it uh, both times, like completely, well, four times, you know, in and out. Uh, the we replaced the cap squadron from 101st Airborne. Uh, they were, they were kind of very much like that. I mean, they had had it sort of, and it turned out that their tour had actually been a lot lighter than ours was, but that you know that wasn't necessarily any fault of their own. Um, it was just that things got hotter in 06, late 06 and then 07 for a number of reasons. But uh, also they had made a secret deal with the Sunnis, the Sunni tribes just south of Baghdad. They, I mean, they literally, I mean, it was some ugly stuff, but I totally get it. Uh, they were basically, they decided, hey, look, we're just going to pick sides. And we're going to go after the Shia militias, and the reason they did that is because in that little sector, the Shia militias had the better bombs. So they were, you know, with the EFPs, they were killing more of these hundred and first guys. So they just like let these tribal guys ethnic cleanse, and I mean, not that that wasn't happening on both sides, but they were they were really sort of tacitly supporting it. A lot of people in my command uh, at the higher levels were just really appalled by that. I was a little more sympathetic to it. I mean, I didn't like that we were there in the first place by then, or pretty early on, and and I thought that it was sort of an indictment that they felt they had to do that. Like, but it was funny because then Petraeus comes in and he solidifies that very same basic tactic that had been piloted out in Ambar by that first armor division. And I think even some Marines of like empowering the Sunnis. And that became policy largely in in, in large swaths of uh, Iraq and West Baghdad. So, but that was sort of fascinating. I felt like it kept switching and that's been my experience both in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I felt like I was, you know, I was a low level and then like an almost mid-level officer, but I was privy to a lot of like the, you know, the rhetoric and the mission statements and the guidance. And I felt like things were always changing. Like it was amazing how the enemy could change, how the mission could pivot, but like in profound ways. And that was one of the things that really threw me. And I think in Afghanistan, the drug war was a perfect example because my official, to the extent we even had them, because sometimes there were just no policy, my official like orders on what to do if I found heroin You know, sometimes it was actually processed, like ready to roll. Most times it was just poppy. Uh, That changed like seven or eight times. Burn it, steal it, let them keep it, let them grow it. I mean, it kept changing and it was just, I don't know. It it struck me, I think, and I'm sure you had this experience too, in both wars. uh, There are no adults minding the store. That's what struck me. And I think I used to be a believer that assumed, like most Americans do, because the same thing is true in Washington, of course, and in the Pentagon. There's no adults, right? There's no adults minding the house. Uh, I think that most Americans, or, or they used to, people are more distrustful now on both sides, but there used to be this sense that people know something more than us, whether it was about 9-11, intelligence, torture, you name it. Someone knows more than I do, so like my opinion almost doesn't matter because I'm not privy to the intelligence. And then I think it became apparent to me uh, experientially and then also reading and studying, nobody really knows what they're doing. Like there really aren't you know, all knowing folks who are creating policy. So yeah, that was the unit we took over for. They, they very much were, were protecting themselves and doing everything possible. I did that. It did not take long before I was lying to my bosses, shutting off the blue force tracker and Humvees. Um, it got so bad. The most extreme example of this is in Afghanistan on the way out. It got pretty rough down in Kandahar and and we were just like maybe a few weeks out and they started putting these trackers, these GPS trackers on us. Um, they called them honesty traces. You want to talk about it in some Orwellian language, honesty traces, they called them. And what you'd have to do on your foot patrol to avoid what you're describing is you'd have to plug it into a computer and it would actually trace where you had done your patrol to stop, you know, to make sure you were doing what they said, because they were coming up with all these things like you have to do eight patrols every 24 hours and they have to go this distance, but no mission statement, just presence course you weren't allowed to say presence patrol because that was you're not allowed to say that word that word was canceled but uh but it was presence patrol so they just called it something different but at the very end i let one of the platoon sergeants when i was troop commander or company commander i let him uh attach one of those gps's to one of our little like drone uh wheeled eod things that we were the handheld like remote control cars and drive it around to create an honesty grade which is like totally illegal right but i won like massive street cred with the boys, but that's not why I did it. It was just obscene to lose another soldier at that point. But I wrote about that in Iraq and ghost riders. And I was actually confronted by an O six colonel in charge of the, uh, Simon center for the professional military ethic, S C P M E at West point, full bird colonel pulled me into his office. Didn't tell me what it was for. I was teaching there. I was still a captain about to be a major and he lambasted me for an hour, about how I'm the worst officer ever for writing that book and for admitting that I told lies and that I'm like, literally shouldn't even be near the military academy because I'm ruining an entire generation. Meanwhile, I hadn't talked about any of that with my cadets. They Most of them didn't even know I wrote a book. But, uh, yeah, he was really angry about that, you know.
0: I wish we would have had some uh, decent officers. I mean, I uh, one of the things that struck me from listening to your previous interviews was uh, just how thoughtful you were while you were in. Uh, that was sort of anything but... Uh, Sergio and I's experience with the officers that we served with and I, I particularly found because we had a chance to interview him as well uh, and it was a good conversation um, and quite funny but I was listening to your talk with uh, Oliver Stone as well and I was I was like Oliver's reaction to you being an officer was pro- would probably have been my reaction if I hadn't listened to your previous interviews like right away mm-hmm. when I hear officer I'm just like oh fuck I start rattling off the names of guys that I'm like And the one who actually had a decent conversation with me um, towards the end of our second deployment was this gentleman by the name of Lieutenant McLaughlin, who was our company XO at the time. And he's smoking this fat cigar outside in our outside of our sea huts on the fob. And I'm having a cigarette and he's just like, Emanuele, he's like, because I kept asking him, I was just like, why are we here? Who are you supporting in the election? Like, I was just going on and on. Like, so much stuff was going on that it was, you know, 2004, so we were there during the presidential election, Kerry versus Bush. At that time, I supported John Kerry, thinking that was, like, a radical thing to do, all the people in the unit. As you as you know, within that sort of insular social bubble, people are like, oh, you're a faggot, hippie motherfucker, Emanuele. Like, you're going to support a Democrat over Bush in the middle of a war? So I thought to myself, like, I'm standing up for something. Like, I actually support this guy. These guys are giving me shit because of it, so fuck you. And McLaughlin, I kept asking him, you know, why are we here? All these just very sort of naive questions that a a 20-year-old asks who has, you know, again, no intellectual background, fucked off in school, no sense of anything. Um, And he said, look, Emanuele, he's like, we're in Al-Qaim because there's fighters going to Fallujah and Baghdad and they're bringing weapons and fighters. We're supposed to be bullet sponges and intercept as many people as we can before they get to the big fight in Fallujah or Baghdad. Why are we in Fallujah or Baghdad? I can't tell you. Why did I vote for George Bush? Because the stock market will do better under him than it will under Kerry. And I was like, thank you for, you're a piece of shit. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking to myself, you're a total piece of shit, but thank you for just being fucking honest with me. It was like the only time that one of the officers just kind of, you know, leveled with me and didn't give me like the standard, whatever line that they're supposed to give. And I was like, that was when it really hit me. Holy fuck. There aren't adults in the room that people have their own interests. Some people are jockeying for better rank and better positions. Some people are lying about missions because they want to survive. Other people are lying about missions because they don't want to look bad to their higher ups. And it just, you know, the, the whole thing came apart for me. So I, yeah. Anyway, that's not a question. I'm just well, kind of. No,
1: I just want to say, it's funny that you said that about the stock market. I written about
0: Whoop. I think that's on our end, Serge. Hold on, Danny, if you could hear me, I apologize.
1: ...and like day trading and investments, but like loud and in front of, you know, in front of the soldiers. And I just remember thinking like, they don't even get it. Like, this is obscene. You know, I don't do any of that stuff. And I'm like, super not interested in like anything financial and I wasn't then and I didn't grow up around it. But I think I also realized that, uh, that maybe I was going to be trapped in the middle sort of like forever because, um, like I've said about, about face, the first time I went to a national convention, people were kind of cool to me. Um, I was still on active duty, which is rare. And I was an officer. I was a major, which is even more rare, you know, and I looked even more clean cut than I do now. And I look pretty clean cut. People thought I was like a plant, Or something. And someone told me that. Like a nice dude was like, Hey, people don't trust you because like you just don't look the part. And I get that. I think I had that sense even as an officer where I was like, I think I like to think that I'm like the working class hero officer who like gets the soldiers, but that's not completely true either, regardless of where I came from, because my experience is different, my job is different, my view is different. So I was like trapped in the middle and it was just like that moment when they were talking like day trading in stocks, like in earshot loud of like their soldiers who can barely buy Pampers, some of them, I was like, this is, I'm trapped, man. Like I'm stuck in the middle.
0: Yeah, no. And that was, that. I think that's what turned me off immediately, which I started to see some of those same class representations replicated within the military structure. And then even the racial stuff or the, the gender stuff, like I just remember getting there and being like, holy shit, this is a more intense version of the South side of Chicago. Like everybody, like the fucking Mexicans hang out with the Mexicans. The black dudes hang out with the black dudes. Like the dudes from the South hang out with the dudes from the South. I'm like, this is fucking wild. Like, I mean, of course, over time people start to mix a little more. You build those friendships, but still at its core, there were dark Marines. There were light green Marines and you know, you'd hear all this bullshit. We're all one shade of green and it didn't play out that way at all. And then also with regard to the um, to the officers, it just seemed like a totally different class of people. That's why I was so struck, as I said, by your previous interviews and your own experiences because it would have been nice to have had uh, an officer around, I think, who had that those the sensibilities that you had. Because I can say from my end as like a PFC Lance Corporal low on the totem pole, we just kind of never knew what the fuck was going on. Like we just would be in the sea hut and they'd be like, hey, we're going out on a mission. And it wasn't that the mission was changing. It was that we never knew what the fucking mission was anyway. They were just like, hey, here's a picture of the high value targets. We're going in. We're doing house raids tonight. Here's who you're looking for. If you see this person, you put a bag over their head and you toss them in the back of the high back. Like that was it. There was no like, hey guys, there's Sunni groups and Shia groups and, and there's um, militants coming from over the border and we had banditry in the area. You know, we had like local gangs. We had, there was so many diff. there was not like one insurgency or some homogenous resistance. I mean, there were so many people even within Iraqi society in, in our experience that were jockeying for protection uh, power, political positions, you know, so on and so forth. And being as close as we were to the Syrian border, there were people coming across all the time that no one could identify. You know, where is this person from? Oh, they're from Jordan or from here. I mean, so yeah, on our end, I just kind of always felt like we were in the dark. I was like, shit, I always kind of wanted to sneak over into the officer's sea hut and be like, what what the fuck are you, what's, what are we really doing here? Because, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know how it is on our end. We just don't get told shit for the most part. I totally get that.
1: It's funny. There's, there's like a similar thing that happens at the junior officer level because like the junior officers, they, they think that they're the real executors, that they really get it and that the seniors don't get it and they wish they can go into their world. But a lot of times that's very self-serving and self-righteous and like the, the officers really don't even really mostly consider their soldiers. I had a lot of trouble making friends to a certain extent. I made great friends and they were a core group, but I, there were times I was a little black sheepish. And that's not like a heroic thing. That's just a reality. But I was always terrified of getting these like missions that I knew were madness. And most of them were, but I mean, the obscene ones, like the air assault into the uh, abandoned village in Afghanistan that we know is literally full of house bombs. I mean, that, and being told we have to do it because the colonel says you have to do it. And you don't ever, you know, I want, my colonel told me that lower caters to higher, And that's why we had to leave on the patrol at 9am because he wanted to come even though I showed them the graphics and the intelligence and all the things I've been trained to do that says you can't leave at 9am. That's when they'll attack you. That whole lower caterers to higher was huge. But when I would get those missions, it was that same sense of being like a double kid that I felt in Staten Island that like, I don't fit in either place. And then you start to get this like inflated view of yourself, which is really dangerous. And, and I have said a million times that I think self-righteousness is like the cardinal sin of the soldier, um, or at least the original sin, not with all of them, but most of the time, there's a sense of entitlement that comes with the fact that you volunteered. I think that's true of junior officers too. So I got this sense that I got it, nobody else did, and I hated getting the order that said I had to do something stupid because my biggest fear was then going to tell the, the soldiers about it, the sergeants really, and just knowing that they were going to look at me like I was crazy. And then I would feel this pressure to like somehow mitigate to make it less stupid or less safe. But also I can't lose my job by completely – saying no, uh, because then you also tell yourself that if I get fired, they're going to get somebody awful. Cause again, I'm the hero. Right. But you see how toxic all of what I'm describing is. It's like not good for me. It's not good for anybody, but you, you do you put yourself in this sense. And, um, yeah, it was like a martyrdom feeling. And I think that it was after Afghanistan when I saw the limits of my ability to make any real difference, no matter how hard I tried that, I realized that like we're working within the system, which is what I'd been told by the officers I respected, the few good ones, was you can't leave. If you leave, people like you leave, then there's just going to be the sociopaths and the incompetents left. So if you get out, you're actually like doing a damage and a disservice to the soldier. And I wanted to believe that because, you know, you want to believe your own myth and utility and legend. But yeah, after Afghanistan, it was pretty clear that there were such limits to that. Now, obviously, I stayed a long time in some uh, for a lot of reasons, but that sense of like not knowing what's going on, it's funny how, that permeates from the top straight down to the bottom. And then at your level, that's really where you, you, you see the absurdity of it because going out on a mission and being handed a picture of a guy who looks like all the other guys on the street and being told to kill or capture him <laughs> without knowing the why or the wherefore, oh, that wow. is, that's like the ultimate description of like the war on terror and microcosm. I mean, you could write an article on just that.
0: Yeah. No, hundred um, percent. What I find amazing is that you, participated in both surges, and I we're not going to have enough time today. we got about 15 minutes left, and uh, but we're going to have you back, man. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Both you and Matthew Ho have been people that I've been following now for the last few years, and I've been really – I can't tell you how happy I am to see sort of a new wave, even though we're largely the same age, but just this new wave of people. I mean, I can tell you, man, Sergio and I were balls to the wall for like six, seven years anti-war activism, and at some point <coughs> – for many reasons, both internal organizational issues, but then sort of the political context as a whole, it just beats you up and eats you up. And it's the hardest movement to be a part of because it doesn't exist in the U.S. right now. It has no money, no attention, no funding. I mean, we can go on and on and on. So to see a whole new wave of vets like yourself, um, I mean, I'm sure you get enough uh, praise from people you don't know, but I, I just tell you, man, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, And I appreciate that you guys are out there and the experiences that both you and Matt have, which are fundamentally different than a lot of the veterans that we came up with, which are a lot of enlisted guys, people who are kind of pissed off when they were in, much like myself or Sergio. Um, And, you know, to have yourself, I think it lends a level of credibility to the movement that really helps us, doesn't harm us.
1: I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's funny. I'd rather hear that from you frankly, not to blow smoke up your ass, but I'd rather hear that from someone like you than, you know, someone in, like, the media or whatever. Not, like, that there's anything wrong with, like, getting some sort of civilian praise, but, like, I'm just kind of over that, and, look, I've got my limitations in a million ways, and, like, my ethical sort of, like, <laughs> conundrums and my lapsed Catholic penance to do for, fuck, almost 18 years in the machine. Like, it's it's obscene how long I was in, but yeah, I mean, I hope that it provides some credence. What's funny is, like, again, being trapped in the middle, there's you know, if you if you medically retire as a major, right, if you leave at the point that I did at the rank I did, the, the, the colonels and the generals on Fox and on MSNBC, shit, there's more of them on MSNBC, MSNBC since Trump got elected, uh, their, their position essentially is to dismiss you because like, oh, you couldn't hack it, you couldn't be like a colonel. They never looked in your personnel file and read your evaluations, but fuck them, I don't care. I mean, let, let them think it's not good, you know? So there's that, and then like you're in the middle, so it's like, oh, well, maybe you're just like one of the other officers, and it's kind of tough. But the thing about the any war movement that you mentioned is it is you're right; it's exhausting. And I've really only been at it actively for about three years, even though half that time I was still on active duty. I think it's just like it's it's exhausting, like physically in terms of just, like traveling and actually doing stuff. But it's like emotionally exhausting in the sense that uh, I feel like I'm still living out some of that turmoil that I felt. As a kid, but more so in the military, because like when you're reading Chomsky in Iraq and then you go to the meeting with a bunch of people, officers who don't give a shit, think you're a traitor if you talk about it. And like you have to just like hold that inside. And I mean, I think that that actually exists in the broader sense in the anti-war movement in a country like you mentioned that doesn't have a consolidated left that uh, to the extent that one exists anywhere, it's definitely weaker here, it always has been. Doesn't have a real national anti-war movement. There is like, I, I do think, and, and you mentioned Matt, Matt and I are close. I can speak for him on this, I think. He's exhausted. I mean, he has been at this for so long, longer than me for sure, longer than almost anybody. And it's like, he needs breaks. Like he has to take himself out of the net for a little bit and just like, hey, I'm gonna take a little knee and drink some water, yeah. like spiritually. and. And I don't know, I watch him and he warns me all the time. He's like, dude, you're, you're, you're running too hard right now. Like, you're too manic. Like, it's great. We need you. But like, because of that, you need to slow down. And I, don't know, I just, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And you, you know, I think the fact that you guys got it so much sooner, I mean, geez, when you were first turning against a lot of this stuff, I was just walking into the war. And it's crazy that we've been. And this is my last point on it. It's crazy to me, and I've never really thought of this until you said it. It is crazy to me that we've been at war long enough that we're in our second or third iteration of anti-war veterans. Yeah, that's that's never happened to me. I don't think there's any historical precedent for that in American history. No,
0: no, I agree, and 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 it's one of the things I've I've said this to Matt, and then unfortunately I don't know know either of you that personally, but as someone who's been around doing this now for a little while, and I hate to sound like one of them you know, we all hate it. It's like, you know, getting advice from people who have done things for a while. I, I would just caution that Surge and I talk about it all the time. We got out of the Marine Corps in 06. We joined Iraq veterans against the war. 98 to 99% of the veterans that we met in 2006 are no longer politically active. Just straight up. And I don't mean on the anti-war movement. I mean, they have dropped out of they're either farming or they're raising families, which is all good stuff. But to do this consistently uh, and to do it, you know, in a way that's uh, sustainable emotionally, socially, physically, mentally, you know. Yeah. Please, man, take breaks because we do need people around. And I. The last thing I want to see is uh, really highly productive, intelligent, worthwhile people just burn themselves the fuck out. And that can happen from any number of things. I mean, that can happen from the objective political context that we're in all the way to working with toxic people or organizations or institutions or campaigns uh, that just drain, drain you, take it all out of you, whatever it may be. Um, So yeah, now we're really off the rails. I forgot the timeline and everything. I'm just kind of bullshitting with you, but uh, it's nice to just talk with you, man. I've been reading and watching your stuff for a while. So it's nice to just catch up with you. It was the same thing when we had Matt on, I had a whole timeline to go down with him and then we just BS for 90 minutes. So it's just good to get to know you guys and to get a sense of where you're coming from and where you're from, you know.
1: That's my favorite thing to do. I'm all about it. Normally, I get the same five questions, like, you know, constantly. So, it's kind of fun to just chat, especially someone who kind of knows the uh, same same general culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, we've got a few minutes left. We'll definitely have you back on. We'll talk again. But I wanted to. Let me let me stick with where you were at at that time and then we can end there and we'll pick back up with you going to Afghanistan and you've alluded to some of your experiences in Afghanistan but sticking with the timeline. So you went through this period of the surge you're becoming more skeptical while you're in Iraq, I don't want to talk about the personal experiences there because as someone who's been asked a million questions about that it's just not useful right now. and it's one of the things I got annoyed with over the years, by the way, one of the things that's get, got me to stop doing as much anti-war work and to sort of branch out into other political uh, campaigns and issues was because every single interview that I did for years, even if I was working on a housing rights campaign, somebody would be like, Hey, so why don't you tell us why don't, why did you join the Marine Corps? And have you ever killed anyone? And what was your experience like in combat? And I'm like, holy fuck, man, I've been telling the same story for 10 years. It's got to stop. Um, so I don't want to get into any of that shit. You're. What are you thinking? You come back and what is it? 07?
1: It was actually New Year's Eve of 07. Um, okay. It was Almost 08. Yeah. I, at the time, we would joke that we hoped we stayed one more day, so we could say that we were deployed for three years. You know. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a long time. I, mean, I also used to joke about applying for Iraqi citizenship. Um, you know, it was just a, it was a long tour. By the end of that tour, I was actually very. Politic- politically uh at least educating myself not really necessarily active yet but i mean i was uh petulant i've always been a little petulant and anti-authority actually so of course the perfect place for me was to go to west point um but you know i mean i was posting world war one siegfried sassoon uh poems on my locker i mean i was growing my hair out and getting yelled at by the majors i mean it was stupid childish stuff but it was like keeping me alive you know uh, spiritually or whatever. Um, By the time I was back, I was over it. I thought all the troops home immediately, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's all got to stop. Like you, though, in 04, but just four years later, uh, I came home and I was on the Obama train big time. Again, it felt courageous to be an open Democrat.
0: Right.
1: In the military culture of George W. Bush is god and dick cheney is darth vader but like the good version somehow like we were all stormtroopers and dick cheney was the father i mean being a democrat was rare being a white male combat arms officer who was a democrat was unheard of right. i mean well, almost unheard of because you talked about the racial divisions and i mean particularly in the army although i think it's probably similar in the marine corps i've done some study on this as you and it has nothing to do with their courage we can get into that but as you go from like least combat oriented to most combat oriented on a, on a linear graph, the, the units get increasingly white and male, yep. of course male because of the rules back then, but white. So it was rare. Um, I actually, at Fort Knox. I was traveling over to uh Southern Indiana, which was like a swing state that year. I believe Obama won yes, it. Was. Yes, it was. First time, First since time, since time in 44 years. years. Yeah. So I'm down, I'm actually on my like weekends and stuff. I was like canvassing knocking on doors for Obama, like in a hoodie, like off-duty, and I thought I was the most courageous dissenter in history. It's so ridiculous looking back. Like, I hate myself for it. But I thought <laughs> I thought that was, like, the biggest thing you could do.
0: Yep. And it
1: was really secretive or whatever. I don't know if it was illegal, but it was, like, untoward to talk about it. Uh, the reason I mention that is because similar to your experience with Kerry, I think when Obama becomes president and I start seeing things that aren't changing and then I get sent to the surge in Afghanistan – which I wasn't supposed to be on. So not only was that surge not supposed to happen or shouldn't have happened, but my unit, it was very like in my face because my unit was supposed to go close down the Iraq war. It's going to be a chill tour. Very excited about that. You know, just to like not lose anybody, not like be involved in killing like folks oh, yeah. who may not have deserved it. Like, I just didn't want to be part of that as a unit. And then like the surge happened and we got redirected, pulled out of Fort Polk, the 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 training center down there, the light Infantry training center pulled out of our tour, we got a, a month and we were in Afghanistan. In fact, I left two weeks later to go like do the tour that like the captains do. And, uh, so it was like in my face that like Obama hadn't changed a thing. And, and my experience was a little bit extreme just in the, the luck or just, you know, lack of luck of going to bolt surges. But to me, like, and we'll, I know we're going to pick up there next time, but like watching Obama not change the system, realizing that he was like a product of it and that his cosmetic self wasn't going to change that. Right. Uh, was that really turned me as much as the Iraq war because the Iraq war took me from a, like a vague Republican or at least a semi-conservative to out and out anti-war. But the Obama lack of change is what turned me into like a systemic critic of like empire. And like the military industrial complex. And so I think that that's where I was. And those were tumultuous years. I was like drinking heavily. I was like barely, I was hanging by a thread. I'm sure you've been there. And I don't mean like making up of it. People oh, had a lot worse. Yeah. People had it worse than me, but I was white knuckling from PT until bedtime for like years. And it's just like that shit will, as you know more as well as me, that is soul crushing stuff. And it was, uh, yeah, those inner war years for me were really bad actually, looking back.
0: Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's pick up on your, both your experience during the, the surge in Afghanistan. Of course, I never served in Afghanistan. I find it particularly interesting, uh, the similarities and differences just operating on the ground there. And then also, yeah, your politos, you coming to your political understandings. And then I would like to talk about the, the work you've done since then. Um, Hey, man, I appreciate it. It's good rapping with you. You're even more Absolutely. fun to talk to than I figured you'd be. So I, <laughs> not that I thought it wouldn't be fun, but I was like, fuck, man, I'm looking forward to talking to this cat. Same with Matt. The only reason we're doing this, man, is because we've got a community center that we opened up years ago that's an organizing hub. Uh, we use it for cultural activities, but primarily as an organizing, sp- an organizing space here in Northwest Indiana. And it's been closed since the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, and so, you know, Surge does documentary films. I've done radio and a lot of speaking events. I was like bouncing around talking at the churches, unions, Quakers, all of the, I'm sure a very similar speaking, uh, yeah. uh, Unitarian. sort of circuit Unitarian. that <laughs> a lot of vegan meals and me sneaking outside to smoke cigarettes and find alcohol somewhere. Um, but in any case, yeah, man, we, we could pick up all that. I just want to tell you, thanks. And, and I had a good time wrapping with you.
1: Oh, I appreciate it, man. It was awesome talking to you guys. Um, yeah, I, sh- I should have known better what to expect, but this was great. And you have me on any time. I'm in. I'll make time for it. This, this is good. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about.
0: Cool, man. I look forward to it. And I'll send you a follow-up pretty soon because I'd like to get that second part out there, too.
1: Yeah, I'm ready whenever. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me. It was
0: All awesome right. talking to you. Take care, Danny. we right. go. Talk to you soon. Peace, brother. Bye. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening if you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P A R C Media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics Art Roots Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.